I'm suffering some real pain this morning because I was toasting a bagel. And I go to get the bagel out, and it's a blueberry bagel, and pieces of blueberry stick to my finger and are literally just burning my finger as I look at the blueberries, and I'm like trying to scrape them off my finger. So pray for me because I'm suffering. Well, if you're not already aware, there are certain topics in the Bible um, that have been hotly contested by people for, you know, now going on 2,000 plus years. And, and one of those uh, topics is kind of like the end times and exactly how that's all going to shake down. Who's going to go to heaven when are they going to go to heaven? How is it going to look? Is it going to be before uh, the tribulation or during the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation or all kinds of stuff? And um, I think a lot of the, the debate also has a lot to do with the fact that um, there, there are some people that just aren't very comfortable with mystery. And um, I think in the West, uh, we like to really get our, our facts straight and we really feel like we like to feel like we have kind of a clear understanding of the topic that it, that somehow if we can understand it clearly that it gives us uh, more faith or we can trust in something if we can understand it really well. The problem then with Christianity is that uh, is, is initially an Eastern religion. Uh, Judaism, Christianity is born out of a Middle Eastern culture, uh, a Middle Eastern culture which is very comfortable with mystery. And so, when you think about it, trying to completely explain the ways of an infinite and perfect God with our finite and imperfect minds, and thinking that we're going to somehow understand everything that he does and why he does it, um, is really kind of borders on arrogant. (laughs) To think that as flawed humans, we would be able to completely wrap our minds around every thought and decision of a perfect God. So as we continue in our study of 1 Thessalonians today, we're going to be reading a passage centered around these, these issues of, of the rapture, with, you know, the time when the Christians are, are pulled up and caught into the air with Jesus, and we're going to look at some of these passages and kind of what happens to us when we die. And I'm going to tell you up front that my explanation of this material is going to leave you wanting, okay? You might even be fairly frustrated with how I present this material today. And um, there's probably going to be some, a sense of unsatisfaction. Um, but I hope you can be okay with that. And I hope you can be sure enough about some things that we're going to talk about today. So that for the things that maybe are still a little bit mysterious and a little bit hard to explain, um, that you can chalk that up to faith and to trust in a God who does understand it all. So that's my hope. <laughs> Our last time together in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we discovered um, that Paul is addressing uh, the people there. There's some issues that have arisen um, in that community in Thessalonica. And as we looked two weeks ago, um, one of those issues that as Paul presented the gospel to them, part of that story is that, hey, Jesus is coming back. And and some of the people there thought that that was going to be really soon. 
So they just decided, you know what, I'm just, I'm not going to work, right? Jesus is coming back. I'm going to kind of take it easy and wait for that. And, and Paul has to kind of insert himself and say, hey, guys, you know, that doesn't really reflect Christ very well in his character and nature. People are going to think that Christians are just kind of lazy. So I need you to get, get back to work. Start working with your hands, okay? Get back to it. So as we finish chapter 4 today, we'll see Paul continuing this discussion of the impending return of Christ. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you haven't done so already, it's page 825. We're going to start in verse 13. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever." Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So apparently, Paul had built up this, this return of Christ, or the second coming of Christ, into a pretty amazing event, and rightfully so. But so much so that some people in Thessal- Thessalonica there, who maybe had some friends or some relatives that were passing away during this time, that they're waiting, start to get kind of concerned, like, are those people going to miss this event in some, ha- in some way? Are they not going to maybe get to experience it in the fullness of those that are alive when it happens, you know, experience it? So they're concerned um, for, those, for those things. And so Paul's response here in chapter 4 is really more pastoral than theological. His main concern here is to try to comfort them, to, to try to... Um, calm a little bit of their anxiety more so than explaining exactly how everything's going to work in some systematic way but one thing you can really take away from this passage is just the the amount of love that the Thessalonian Christians had for one another because they didn't want any of their brothers and sisters in Christ to miss out on this this event in some way so it's interesting to note as you probably look through this passage you might have noticed that Paul uses the phrase fall asleep instead of died so any, any ideas as to why? And you see this as well in, in, in when he's talking about Lazarus and, and Jesus, and you know, he just says Lazarus has fallen asleep. So, yeah, way in the back there, yes. Okay. Yes, once you're dead, you're dead. But falling asleep isn't a permanent thing. That's great. Um, So at some point you wake up, right? So as Christians, when our physical body passes away, our spirit is taken up into heaven. We we get a new body, a heavenly body, okay? And early Christians had a a concept, an understanding of this concept, and one of the places I want us to, actually I want to put the slide up so you don't have to turn there, but we see this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to this guy named Stephen who uh, became a follower of Christ uh, post-resurrection. And he uh, 
is, is going and he's talking to a Jewish audience. He's sharing with them the gospel, talking about Jesus' death and resurrection and his return. And the Jewish audience is not having it and they charge him with blasphemy and they're stoning him to death. So in the midst of that scene in Acts chapter 7, this is what it says about Stephen. Todd, slide. There you go. All right. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay, there's that phrase again. And that that doesn't mean that he didn't die. It just means that it wasn't permanent, that his soul lived on. Okay? In fact, early Christians... I I just learned this this week. This is interesting. Early Christians were the first ones that started to call their burial places cemeteries. That word cemetery um, literally means dormitories or sleeping places. And so very early on, there was this amazing trust um, and hope in the promises of God that, that their earthly death wasn't the end of their life. Now, in contrast, first century pagans had a very pessimistic view of the afterlife. Um, you know, historians have seen inscriptions on, on some of these tombs from the first century. Here's a couple of examples of, of some inscriptions on some tombs. One said, of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Or even more dreary is this one. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. <laughs> a Debbie Downer, right? It's like, wow, okay. So in the midst of this pessimistic culture in regards to the afterlife, Paul reminds them that it's okay to grieve, you know, for some of these folks that you've lost here in Thessalonica, but don't do it like people who don't have any hope, right? We do have an amazing amount of hope. And then he reminds us in that passage what our hope is in. In verse 14, um, if you look at that again, it's this amazing statement of faith. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, folks, I want you to, to humor me a minute and, and kind of take a step back and, and consider that as Christians, we really believe some wacky stuff. I mean, have you ever really thought about what we believe? I mean, we believe in a God that we can't see, right? And we believe that at some point in history, that God decided to become a human, And so the Holy Spirit impregnated this teenage girl, and so she gave birth as a virgin to God in the flesh, who then grew up in this insignificant town called Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, who then, at the age of 30, took on his Messiah role as a savior of the world, and and so he went, and and he was arrested and killed, but then he was bodily resurrected. And then he ascended into heaven and he said, if anyone would believe in me and follow me, that, that so one day you'll be with me there too. That's crazy. <laughs> and so it's funny sometimes how we can, especially in our Western culture, we can be so uncomfortable with mystery. But we get so used to telling that story that it loses a little bit of its wackiness. Right? It's just like, man, that is a crazy story that we say we believe every Sunday when we come to church right? And so I think sometimes we need to stop poking around at other religions that we kind of think, man, you guys believe some crazy stuff. I'm like, man, look in the mirror. 
We believe some crazy stuff, all right? I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying it's, it's crazy how it all went down, right? So let's look at each of these key points stated in verse 14 here and see if we can get some, some teeth into these things here. The first thing it says is that Jesus died, but he didn't just die any death, okay? We as Christians believe that his death paid the penalty for our sin, that, that because of that death that we are now justified or we are made right before God, okay? So that's the first part. It says that he died, and then it says that he rose again. And, um, and what does that mean? What, what did that mean when God resurrected Jesus? What was he saying when he did that? Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> What he was saying was, is that I accept that payment for the sins of the world. That, that your death satisfied the wrath that I have towards sinful man so that now that I can have a relationship with them, that they can be forgiven, they can be cleansed. And so in raising Jesus, God said that I, I accept the, the sacrifice of your body for the sins of the world. That's what that means in terms of how God sees it. Okay, so Jesus died, he rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And why do we believe that? Well, we believe it because Jesus said it. Here's a couple different things he said would happen. In John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is, this is Jesus speaking with the, the sister of Lazarus who had died. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Man, that's a great question, isn't it? And then in John 14, 19, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And so, so we really have to ask ourselves, do we believe this stuff? I mean, is this truth really rooted in us? Those are some important questions. Because Paul believed this doctrine with his whole heart, he reiterated that promise in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, here, and then again in 2 Corinthians 4.14, look at this. He says, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Do you see that? How he put that? He says, because we know there's no doubt in his heart. That's why, you know what, for some people that whole heaven is for real book and movie was kind of a big deal. And I'm thinking, yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't need another book or movie to explain that to me in a way that I didn't already believe was possible. So um, it's interesting, though. Remember, this letter that Paul wrote to the people in Thessalonica was written about 51 AD, which was roughly... 10 to 15 years before the first gospel was written. And here and in many of Paul's other teachings, we see this very clearly early on statement of the certainty of the resurrection of Christ. There was no doubt in the early church that Jesus died and was bodily resurrected by God and that he ascended into heaven where in the book of Hebrews chapter one, it says he sat down at the right hand of God and he intercedes on our behalf. That is... That is what Christ is doing now. And this was a huge doctrine. 
Okay, I'm reading a, a book um, now that kind of talks about first century history in terms of um, people who were making claims of being the Messiah. And in first century, you know, Israel, Middle East, you've got a Jewish people that are under the oppression of the Romans, okay? And so their understanding and their hope of what the Messiah that the Old Testament promised and prophesied about was going to be, was going to be this king who was going to come and overthrow the Romans and reestablish Israel as an independent nation, okay? And they were going to, you know, not be under the power and authority of of a foreign oppressor anymore. And so in the first century, Jesus was just one of many, many people, who, who came forward and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King of the Jews, follow me, let's go take the Romans down. And each one of those false messiahs gathered followers because people were, were hungry for that. And every other one of them, and actually including Jesus, all of them were killed. All of them were executed by the Romans. But only one of them... <laughs> Are people still talking about today, right? Something happened to Jesus that was very different than all these other guys. His tomb was empty. His followers, who had just been ordinary guys, all of a sudden become these amazing preachers and and are taking uh, this gospel out to the world, are willing to die for this message. Okay, something very significant happened there. And so this whole idea of resurrection is so critical to the early Christian movement. Um, let's look in, in 1 Corinthians. If you could turn your Bibles over there to page 801. 1 Corinthians 15. I guess what I'm saying is that we kind of take this whole notion of the resurrection for granted. We're just so used to hearing it and kind of accepting that it's true. At that time, this was... This was a mind-blowing um, statement that his followers were making, that, that this man was, was resurrected and he was no longer <laughs> dead, okay? And so we see Paul writing to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who was the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So that letter was written about 55 AD. And it shows that there was a standard presentation of the basics of the gospel story of Christ. There was kind of this statement of faith, you know, that Paul would say, this is what we believe. It was passed on to me, and now I'm passing it on to you. We believe these things. Jesus died. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven that, you know, one day he's going to take us there to be with him as well. So to say you were a follower of Christ at that time was to say that you believe those things that we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. Not only to say that you believe them, but you knew them to be true 
And you were willing to risk your life for those truths. And a lot of them did give their life for those truths. I was just reading this morning in a devotional about a guy named St. Ignatius of Antioch who was a disciple of John, uh, who became a, a real big leader in the Christian movement in the early second century whose life ended being eaten you know, by wild animals in the Colosseum. And so you know, there was a lot at stake in saying that I believe these things to be true okay, at that time. Now, as we conclude this passage, I want us to go back to something that Jesus said to John uh, in John in chapter 14. So I want you to turn to John chapter 14, page 752. And in this, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and it's, it's just after he's told them, hey, guys, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to, to suffer and die there, but I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. And as you can imagine, with his disciples who have this image in their mind of Jesus is going to be this king, we're going to overthrow the Romans, this is all going to be amazing, then he says, well, it's going to be amazing in a different way. Um, It was really troubling for them, okay? And so Jesus, in chapter 14, is trying to speak some comfort to them, just like Paul is doing in, in Thessalonica. So let's look at verses 1 through 4. Jesus says this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled, You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. So Jesus lays out this amazing promise for us, right? But do you notice that it's pretty lacking in detail? I mean, he says he's going to come back and get us, but he doesn't really say exactly how that's going to happen, right? Exactly what that's going to look like. So back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tries to explain a little bit what that will look like. And we read that passage earlier. I'll just read verses 15 through 18 again. He says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? I mean, we can, you know, we, we say we believe that, but to, to really picture that happening, it kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, man, that's hard, hard to understand. <clears throat> but guys, here's the deal for me, as I kind of want to wrap up with this today, is For me, the biggest question is not exactly how this is all going to happen. The biggest question is, will it happen? And and to that, that's an emphatic yes. Jesus Jesus promised that it would. And we're really kind of banking on that, aren't we? I mean, I know I am, right? Because I'm hoping that life in this world and, and what goes on here 
is not the best that there is, is not all that there is to offer, that the pain and the suffering and the war and the genocide and the famine, the abuse and the, the rape and all that kind of stuff, that, that that can't be all there is. There's gotta be more than that. And because we know that a perfect heaven awaits us when, when all things will be made right, right? In Revelations it says, well, there will be no more pain and no more tears and no more suffering. We'll be in the presence of a perfect God. That's all I need to know. <laughs> I don't know exactly how it's gonna happen. And I'm perfectly comfortable not understanding how that's all gonna go down. Mainly because, one, I trust in God. And so if he says it's gonna happen, then I'm just fine with however it happens. I don't care if I ride on a plane or a spaceship or whatever, okay? I don't care how I'm gonna get there. But secondly, I'm not sure knowing exactly how it's all gonna happen would really change the way in which I live today. Because I think we get caught up in a lot of arguments about this, that, and the other in the Bible that, you know, if it, if it doesn't change the way in which I love God and love others, I'm not sure it's really worth arguing about or spending a ton of time digging around trying to figure out exactly how. I think some things are just supposed to be a little bit mysterious and that we just have to trust God for. But here's the issue I think we ought to be concerned with. <clears throat> because we have this resurrection hope, how should we live right now? Because it's not so much about uh, figuring out exactly how we're going to get to heaven, but the question is, how does knowing that we will be in heaven someday affect the way in which I live today? Now, that's a real interesting question. Because I know I'm going to heaven, and the death has no power over me, then what? What are the implications of that truth? And I think it's really important that we, we ask those types of questions. As I was sitting here this morning, God just brought this verse to me. In Ephesians 5, 15, Paul writes, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see, Paul is, is saying um, you know, don't waste time here on earth. Yeah, we know we've got heaven out there. It's coming someday. Um, but it's very important how we live right now, that we're making the most of every opportunity to, to share that message. And so I, I, wanna, I want you to sit and ponder on this as we close today. I want to put this question back up here on the screen. And I'm going to give you two or three minutes to just sit and think about this. Because I know I'm going to heaven and the death has no power over me, then what? And what are the implications of that truth for us right now? Now, I say that first phrase for those of us that are calling ourselves followers of Christ. There might be some people here today who don't know what their eternity looks like, and that's a whole different conversation I'd be happy to have with you after the service. But for those of you that call yourselves Christians, I want you to just think about that for a bit. Think about how you would answer that question, and then we're going to spend some time kind of talking about that before we go this morning. So if this is all really true, 
And if we all really believe that Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a room for you, I'm going to come back and I'll take you to be with me, that you'll be with there, there with me also in heaven one day. And what does that mean for us right now? What are the implications of that on the way that we live day in and day out? Yeah, Jim. Okay. So it's one, one concept is that I've, I've got work to do here, right? And then I'm preparing myself for that time. Okay. What else? Yeah. Uh, what am I doing and how am I living in a way that Okay. So how am I living uh, with that understanding of that truth, that hope that I have um, in a way that compels other people to want to know that truth as well, to seek that as well? Do you have your hand up? Yeah. Okay. Good. I need to tell other people about that hope without any shame or embarrassment or, or guilt. Yeah. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to fear any situation that we go into because we already know that, that Christ is one. And if, if somebody takes our life for sharing the gospel, we know we're going to be with God. So. You know, as Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm fine with dying. I mean, that's how Paul lived his life. That's how he could go from town to town preaching this gospel and getting beaten up and flogged and stoned, and he could get up and go to the next town because he knew, even if I die, I'm with Jesus, so what do I have to fear? And they gave him this amazing freedom and courage and boldness to, to go and, and to, to not allow the enemy and um, literal enemies here on earth and the enemy Satan and the things he wanted to do to try to slow him down, to stop him from this call and this mission to get this message into people's hearts and minds. Other thoughts? Yeah, Aaron? Yeah, so she's making connection to what I said in the beginning that because a lot of times we live in this life with this um, expectation that we deserve life to go a certain way, then um, we're really not communicating. When we do experience suffering and pain in this world, sometimes we're living like we don't have that hope or like that hope that we have in Christ is not good enough. Like I want that plus I want my life here to be really good too. And so we become dissatisfied and, and, um, in, in our current circumstances, which then probably taints the way in which we share with others this hope in, in you know, the next life that we have. Yeah. Right. Instead of like checking off the boxes of how you get to heaven, 
Okay. Yeah, she said that, um, you know, we have all these stories in our culture kind of, of like this image of when we get to the, the pearly gates, you know, Peter's going to be standing there with a checklist and kind of, you know, keeping score of how you did in life. And so it almost creates a little bit of kind of an anxiety or a little bit of a, a works mentality that I've got to be good enough instead of resting in the knowledge that, that when we've been, been, been forgiven, um, we don't have to earn our way there, that we can live in that freedom um, that comes from that, that understanding. Good answers. And, and what I really wanted to stretch you guys to do here today is to take a concept that we toss around and we, you know, kind of give lip service to of, you know, yes, yes, we're going to heaven and I believe that. Um, but what are the implications of that truth on now? And, and also to kind of address, you know, it's okay that we don't understand how it's all going to work. You can let go of trying to figure that all out, I think. You know, if you have disagree with me, that's fine. But, but we have freedom in that. And, and, and you think about the way in which the disciples lived after Jesus left. They were left behind in this really hostile environment. Their leader had just been killed, so you would think that followers of that leader would also be on alert, right? But they had this amazing sense of peace in knowing that Jesus' promises were true if they died, and all of them did for their faith, that they were going to be okay. They were going to be with, with God. And so they can live without fear. And we talked about this amazing safety net that we have as followers of Christ, that we ought to be the most bold, courageous, fearless people this world knows if we really believe what we say we believe. Let's, let's pray, and then we're going to head into a time of communion. This morning, Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, just for your great love for us, that in not only dying but, but, but rising again, Lord, that we have this amazing hope that this world and what we experience here in this broken, messed up place is not the end for us. And so, Lord, we're, we're grateful for that. And God, we pray that we would just trust you completely. Lord, that we would take the things that we can grasp, uh, the things that we do understand, and that those would um, just give us faith for the things that are just kind of beyond our understanding. God, but we would just know those things to be true. I love the way Paul writes, and he just says, I know this. (laughs) And God, I pray that that knowledge, that belief that we have would translate into how we live each day. God, that we wouldn't fear death, that we wouldn't fear the world, or we wouldn't fear temptation or persecution or, or whatever. God, that we have this amazing safety net of know, knowing that we're completely loved and received and that you're preparing a place for us and that you promised us, promised us that you're not going to leave us as orphans, that you're going to come back and take us to be with you. So God, help us not to put our trust in the things of this world so that we can hold on to you and trust in you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.